Last Lord's Day, we learned from the Apostle Paul the answer to the question, has God's promises to Israel failed? The implication for this question comes to us in Romans chapter 9, verses 1 to 5, where Paul suggests that because of unbelief, his fellow countrymen, the Israelites, were cut off from a relationship with Jesus Christ, the God-man, even though these Israelites had every privilege known to man, the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship of Yahweh, the promises to the patriarchs of old. Paul's robust answer to this dilemma was to say in Romans 9-6 that none of these realities about his Jewish contemporaries is to suggest in the slightest that the Word of God has failed. He goes on in verse 6 of Romans 9 to point out that not all ethnic Israel was ever intended to make up true spiritual Israel. He goes on to say in verses 7 to 13, as we covered them last time, that it shouldn't be assumed by these Israelites that just because they are physically descended from Abraham, they are therefore the true spiritual children of God. In other words, no ethnic Israelite should assume that simply because of their racial heritage, they are by that a part of what makes up the children of God. If that's the case, Paul says, then upon what basis is an ethnic Israelite, or anyone else for that matter, a genuine part of God's spiritual family? What constitutes the legitimate makeup of God's familial household? Well, Paul's answer to that question in verses 9 to 23 of Romans chapter 9 is frankly shocking. Do you want to know how he answers this question of how it is to be determined who is and who is not a part of the family of God? Look at the latter part of verse 11. Verse 11b. Here's the answer. God's purpose of election might continue or stand or remain, not because of works, but because of His, that is, God's call. That's His answer. Election. That provides the basis for whoever is in the family of God. And of course, that is also the basis for whom it is marked for those who are not a part of the family of God. Look also at verse 24 of Romans 9, where Paul also includes Gentiles, even among those Jews who are chosen by God. Even us, he says, whom he has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. 
The answer to the question of the basis upon which anyone in the world, whether Jew or Gentile, is a genuine part of the family of God, is God's electing grace. God chooses those whom He wants to know and whom He wants to serve Him. That is the basis from which God has a saving relationship to His people. Listen to how Paul states it in Ephesians chapter 1. You don't have to turn there. Listen to it. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed, blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Capital B, the Beloved One. Further, in verse 11 of that glorious chapter, Paul says this, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. My friends, if you are a Christian, that is a bona fide member of the family of God, it is upon the basis of God's choosing you to be saved through the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ. That's the basis. That's the sole basis of your salvation. It's not based upon human works or merit of any kind. So much so that Paul says here in the Romans 9, 7-13 text that it was through Isaac alone and not Ishmael that the Israelites would be called or named as the genuine offspring of God. That's what Paul says there in verse 7. And not all children of Abraham are implied the true children of Abraham spiritually simply because they are of, his, are of his offspring, physically descended from him, but through Isaac, this is the promise of God, this is why God's word has not failed, his promise to the true Israelites, through Isaac shall your offspring be called or named. It was through Isaac alone. And according to verse 10 and following, it was God's purpose of election and its basis alone whereby God chose Jacob over Esau in which to bless the Israelites. For God says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And with our God, there is absolutely no personal animosity here. There's no sinful partiality spoken of here, but there is distinguishing grace. It is particularized. And for His own sovereign purposes 
and for those purposes in part of fulfilling his promises to these Israelites, he has chosen to bless Jacob, God's true spiritual seed, and he has chosen to reject Esau, even using the hard language of hatred to speak of his passing over Esau and his line, the Edomites. You say, this seems unfair. It doesn't seem right that God would choose one rather than the other. I think God ought to have chosen both of them. In fact, I think God ought to choose everyone. Uh, God ought to choose everyone to be a part of His family. And is that not the prevailing attitude in our culture today, except, of course, for those who would agree that people like Osama bin Laden and Saddam Hussein should indeed be rejected by God. Curious how we are particular in our own thoughts, aren't we? But for a man like Esau, why would God reject him? Well, if you look carefully at the Genesis account... Why would God even choose to bless someone like Jacob? That's the question. He was a sinner like Esau. A different kind of sinful behavior, of course, but equally a sinner in the eyes of the Lord. But but I just don't like this electing and rejecting business. It doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem right. It seems so arbitrary. It seems capricious. Well, if that's the conclusion you've come to this morning, or as we ended last time, you've correctly understood the Apostle Paul. You've correctly understood him. That's the objection that he's answering right here. Aren't you glad to know that if you had those thoughts, he's speaking now directly to you? The Apostle Paul speaks directly to somebody who says, I think there's injustice with God going on here. Notice what he says in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice or unrighteousness on God's part? You see, if someone comes along and says, I just don't think that this is fair, and I think this is unjust of God, and I think there's maybe even a little bit of unrighteousness on the part of God, then Paul has you in mind as he speaks. He asks the question, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? He sets up an objection here in verse 14 coming right out of the section of those hard statements in verses 7 to 13. And I agree with you. They're hard statements. Very hard. Some of the hardest in all the Bible, if not the hardest of all of the Bible. And Paul knows that too. He knows he's going to hear an objection from those who have read his words in verses 10 and 11. Notice it with me, verses 10 and 11. And not only so, that is with Sarah, but also when Rebekah had conceived children, that's Jacob and Esau, the twins, by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, 
in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of His call, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, that is, Jacob whom I've determined to set my love upon and therefore will bring into my spiritual family, but Esau I hated. That is, Esau, whom I have rejected from being a part of my spiritual family. And someone comes right on the heels of that and says, I simply don't agree with this. And perhaps you're one of those who may disagree with this distinguishing grace of God. Perhaps you're one of those who may assume that God must choose everyone to be a part of His spiritual family. You would then... Be like the Israelites of Paul's day who believed that every single one of their fellow Jews were automatically a part of God's spiritual family. They thought they were all in simply because they were physically descended from their forefather Abraham. You remember I told you last time that even the Jews of Jesus' day said, We have Abraham as our father. That was their answer to him. We're in. And if some of them were, it was only because God elected them to grace. And if they weren't, it was because they had been rejected. And you know, even for the Gentiles, the Jews had the idea, look, if you're in, it's only because you have to convert to Judaism. You have to undergo a proselyte baptism. So, if you're in, it's because you have to be connected to Abraham somehow. And you know, some people in our own day might say something like this. Well, look, I mean, if you're telling me that God has distinguishing grace... I'm telling you, I reject that because I think that what you really need to do is you really need to live a good life and do good deeds to those around you. And surely, if that's the case, God will accept you and then He'll make you a part of His spiritual family. And that is prevailing in our day, isn't it? Live a good life. Do what you need to do. Be kind to children. And surely, if that's the case, God wouldn't reject people, would He? Eternally? And do you mean to tell me that all other religions today, other than Christianity, are in fact then pagan religions? Are you suggesting that even Judaism, if they reject Jesus as their Messiah, are out? Yes, Yes. Well, I simply can't agree with you. I believe that God chooses everyone, and ultimately it is that person alone, whether their label is religion or not, who makes the final determination of where they themselves will spend eternity. Paul teaches otherwise. He says, though they, these twins, were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might stand. His choosing. 
And Paul even gives, if someone were to say, yeah, but what he's really talking about here is he's really talking about nations. He's not talking about individuals. He's using names, particular names, individual names, but he's really talking about nations. Well, if that's the case, then why is he using names? Why is he talking about individual people coming right out of the womb? Why is he talking about these individuals themselves? No, he is talking about individuals here. Not simply nations, not simply peoples, but individuals. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Yes, I suppose that is the question on our minds. What shall we say? What shall we say to these hard things? Now, maybe you're not one of those people that says, look, I don't agree with that. Because you're saying to yourself, it's in the Bible. I I can see it. I can read it on my own. It's not that I want to impugn the character of God in any way, but I struggle with this hard teaching. I understand your struggle. I struggle with it too. This is a most difficult word from God. And we need grace to hear and understand these things. We not only need the grace to be saved, we need the grace to understand these hard words. We'll not understand these matters fully and completely, but we are called upon to ponder them and to believe them, and even though it is hard to come to grips with these things. Part of the reason we struggle in understanding these things is that we are mere children when it comes to an attempt to understand the choices of our Heavenly Father. Isn't that so? He is far more, infinitely more aware of the issues than we are, and we cannot fully come to terms with these things, but that doesn't mean we should reject them. I'm reminded of the late Donald Gray Barnhouse, the yesteryear pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. He was trying to communicate to his own congregation how we might understand these things more fully, how they might, knowing that human illustrations all break down at some points. He used this illustration to try to come to grips with this idea of we as children attempting to understand the infinite wisdom of our Heavenly Father. And he gave this illustration. He said this. He said there was once a young boy who loved his dog. He was always with his dog. They were inseparable. He fed the dog. He cared for the dog. He slept with the dog. He did everything with this dog. He loved this dog. And one morning the boy realized that his dog wasn't with him and he searched and searched and he finally opened the door of the garage only to find his own father holding the dog with one hand and had a gun and the other hand pointed at the dog's head. And before, before the boy could do anything, the father shot the dog. And there was nothing that the boy could do. The dog was instantly dead. The boy screamed and yelled at his father, Don't! What are you doing? He realized the dog was dead. He said, I hate you! I hate you! For many years... He couldn't understand what the father had had done. Why would he do such a thing? And it apparently didn't matter that the father tried to explain immediately to the 
to the boy that another dog in the neighborhood had rabies and that he'd bitten the boy's own dog. And he tried to comfort him and console him, but it was to no avail because that was his beloved dog. He couldn't understand. It wasn't until many, many years later that the child, now a man and a father himself, would begin to understand the wisdom and the loving kindness of his own dad. And I think that, at least in part, helps us try to understand that God's wisdom, His plan, His purpose is so infinitely further than our ability to completely comprehend. And there may be at times our own visceral reaction that says, Why? Why? What are you doing? And we struggle to come to grips with what our Heavenly Father is doing and choosing men and rejecting others. And it may take many, many years, beloved, for our maturing and our understanding of His character in order to come to grips with these things. It's, it's not as though some of us distrust His heart. It's simply that we need to mature in our thinking as we contemplate His nature and the nature especially of one who distinguishes His grace, bestowing it on some and passing by others, and all because of His sovereign freedom to do so. Maybe that's where you are today. But to the person who is on the other side and who still maintains that there is injustice in the very character of God. It's not that you say, I trust you, but I don't understand you. It's really the person who says, I do believe that there is injustice with you here, God. Notice Paul's response in verse 14. By no means is there injustice with God. By no means... Absolutely not is there injustice on God's part. Paul is all about protecting the character of God, especially as it relates to the sovereign freedom of God. And as I've taught you before throughout the book of Romans, when Paul responds to an argument in this way, he uses the strongest negative answer that he can possibly give. Absolutely not is there any injustice on God's part. No way. That's what he's saying. If you've come to this conclusion, you've misunderstood the very character of God. And it is to this kind of person that Paul now comes in verses 14 to 23 to answer. He's going to give, in a broad-brush fashion, two questions. One here in verse 14, running through verse 18 with the answer. And a second question, which he poses in verse 19, which he then runs through the answer all the way to verse 23. And his answer to the first question in verse 14 is as follows. Look at verse 15. Here's his answer about the injustice on God's part. After saying, no way, he says in verse 15, For he, God, says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion or running, but on God who has mercy." 
For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he, God, has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. This is a hard word. But I don't want you to forget the overall context of the words of Paul here. You remember, he started out by answering the dilemma in verses 1 to 5 by saying in verse 6 that the word of God's promises has not failed. Paul says, I know that presently Israel has been cut off, severed from Christ. They've, they've rejected their Messiah. I know that, he says. And he even says so passionately, and if it were the case, even though I know it's not the case, but if it were to be possible, I would be severed, cut off from Christ myself for the sake of my kinsmen, my countrymen according to the flesh. I would do that if that would mean that Israel would be saved. And of course, someone would immediately object and say, but wait a minute, if that's true, what about all those promises in the Old Testament? What about all those promises? Does that mean that the word of God's promise has failed? He says in Romans 9, 6, absolutely not. The word of God has not failed. He says you, you, are, you are asking the right kind of question, but you've got the wrong premise. Here's the premise. Not all of Israel is really spiritual Israel. That's what he says. That's the challenge that he's going to try to answer. And when he answers that, though, he answers with a dilemma that is shocking. And it is this. I'm going to tell you, he says, how it is true that not all Israel is truly Israel. And then he says this. Isaac was the one that I said I would call and bless and make a great nation out of. That's spiritual Israel. They're the children of God, not Ishmael. Someone's going to come along and say, well, see, I know the, the reason. It's because Ishmael was born to Hagar, and Hagar was an Egyptian, and because she was an, uh, an Egyptian, she was a Gentile person. That's why this particular issue is that God chooses Isaac and not Ishmael. And Paul anticipates that. He says that's not it either. And then he gives the ultimate, the coup de grace. He says in Verse 9, for this is what the promise said, about this next year I will return this time and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, she was told, verse 12, the older will serve the younger. He says, I'll tell you who the true spiritual Israel really is. And it's Isaac, and it's Jacob, and it's not Ishmael, and it's not Esau. And someone's going to immediately say, but that's, that's distinguishing between the two. And that's correct. That's his answer. The word of God's promise is not going to fail. It's going to come true, but it's not going to come true for the people who assumed it's going to come true for them, and that is every single Israelite. It's not going to come true for every one of them. But it is going to come true for those Israelites that God has chosen to bless. 
That's his answer. And somebody's going to say, boy, that's a hard word. And it is. It is. You know what this passage teaches? The unconditional election of God. That's what it teaches. It is not conditioned, he says, on works, verse 11, but because of his call. It is the unconditional election of God. It is the distinguishing grace of God. And then someone comes along and says, I've got a big time problem with that. I think that that potentially or even in some minds actually impugns the very character of God. And Paul says, let me anticipate that. Verse 14. Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. And what does he do? What's his answer to this objection? Well, he goes right to Scripture, which I love. That tells me Paul is a presuppositionalist. I love it. He doesn't try to argue from creation or conscience. He goes right to the Old Testament Scripture to prove to these Roman Christians that God is not unjust. He goes right to the Word of God. He goes right to the book of Exodus and the account of the deliverance of the Israelites. And he quotes God's Word to Moses in Exodus 33. And I want to invite you to turn there with me because this is a, this is a marvelous text. And I want us to get the context set in our minds so that we would do well to understand why Paul turns to this very text. I mean, of all the passages in the entire Word of God, Paul wants to answer the question about the unconditional electing grace of God by this one text. That means it's pretty important. Exodus 33. We could start in verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Moses says, Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. He wants to know God. He wants to know Him intimately. He wants to know that God is truly leading. He wants to know that God is near. He wants God's leadership. Consider too, Moses said, that this nation is your people And God said in verse 14, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up here. Precious verse in all of Scripture. For how shall it be known that I found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in you going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? You know that God had initially said, I'm going to send Something else, I'm going to send the angel of the Lord. And Moses, in essence, says, that's not good enough. I need you, Lord. I need your presence to go with us. And that found favor in the Lord's sight. In verse 17, and the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. There's an intimacy of relationship there. Moses said, please show me your glory. 
And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name. And what is the name? The Lord. That's the covenant name italicized in your Bible. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And of course, you know that he took Moses and he put him in the cleft of the rock, according to verse 22, and he covered with his hand until the Lord was passed by and took away his took away his hand and Moses saw his backside. This is the passage that Paul appeals to. And notice what he says in the latter part of verse 19. He says, proclaiming the name of the Lord, and he says, here's the quote, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Now go back to Romans 9. Just so that no one will have any doubt about what Paul is doing in grounding God's choice in God's own sovereign freedom and nothing else, notice what he says in verse 16 of Romans 9. So then, after quoting that passage, so then it depends not on human will or exertion or running, but on God who has mercy. This Sovereign freedom of God's own choosing absolutely excludes, Paul says, any human boasting, any human willing, or any human exertion of any kind, even the foreseen faith of someone. He says, for it depends, source, origin, the dependence of God's choosing, or His salvation, or His blessing, or His honor, or his extending of mercy to us, Paul says, is dependent upon his sovereign grace. He grounds it right into the character of God. And he quotes that passage to Moses and says, I tell you, this is the basis upon why I choose. So that I might Extend mercy on those whom I choose. You say, well, that's, that's not an answer. I want a better answer than that. I want a different answer than that. I want a more complete answer than that. That's the answer that Scripture gives. That's like that Ephesians 1 passage. Why did He do it? Why did He choose us? For the glory of His grace. So that His grace would be on display so that it would exalt the mercy of God. That's why. Listen to Philip Graham Riken, who followed James Montgomery Boyce at 10th Presbyterian Church, the very church where, where Donald Gray Barnhouse was once the preacher, the illustration I gave you a moment ago. This is what he says. The Scripture shows that God Himself claims the right to have mercy on whom He will have mercy. Apart from the counsel of God's own will, there is nothing that determines the objects of His mercy. And then he says, does that answer the objection? 
Just think about that for a moment. The objection is that election is unfair, that it is unjust for God to choose some but not others. Yet in his answer, Paul says nothing at all about justice. Isn't that interesting? Riken says it's all about mercy. It's all about mercy. And you see, that is exactly the point. Salvation is not about fairness. If all you want is for God to be fair, then what's fair is for every sinner to be condemned to the wrath and curse of God. Fairness isn't even the right category here. If we insist on fairness, the question of election will never come up at all because no one will ever be saved. But God is a merciful God. And mercy is an entirely different category from justice. In salvation, God does not give us what we deserve, but what we could never deserve. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Salvation is all of God. It does not depend on what you want or what you can do, but only on the sovereign will of a merciful God. He goes on to say, what God said to Moses holds true for salvation in Christ, which from beginning to end is all about God's mercy. It is only by God's mercy that anyone hears the gospel. And once people hear it, it is only by God's mercy that anyone ever believes it. It is by God's mercy that we are joined to Christ and receive all of God's blessings. God shows His mercy to us in justification, imputing to the sinner the righteousness of Christ. God shows His mercy in adoption, receiving us as His own dear children. God shows us His mercy in sanctification, making us to be like Christ. And one day He will show us His mercy in glorification, transforming us into His glorious image. Salvation is one mercy after another. And it all flows from the cross where God showed mercies to sinners in Christ. He ends by saying, if you're a Christian, then deep down in your heart, you know it's true that you owe everything you are and everything you have to the mercy of God. That is true. And I would add, if you're a Christian, and, and if you've objected to this doctrine of unconditional election and the sovereign bestowal of God's free mercy on whomever He wills, struggle no longer. Let Scripture rule over your limited perspective. Let Scripture crush our human pride. You realize, as A.W. Pink once said, that the doctrine of election as taught in Scripture is the most pride-crushing doctrine in all of the Word of God. Crushes our pride. It brings us low. Why? So that we might stay there? No. So that we might look up and exalt the mercy of God. Let God be God who will have mercy upon whom He will have mercy. And if God has mercy on those whom He wills, the Scripture also teaches just as truly, and here's the hard part, that He has wrath upon whom He will have wrath. Look at verse 17. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this 
very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that by my name or that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And beloved, if there is a positive side to election, and we love this part, Jacob I loved, and we love the part about God giving mercy to us, there's also a negative side, and it is the damnation of sinners, the reprobation of sinners, Esau I hated. And Paul quotes again from the Exodus passage. He says, In Exodus chapter 9, from this quotation, Exodus chapter 9, this is between the sixth and seventh plagues, Exodus 9, 8, And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kill, and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt, and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they shook soot from the kill, and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses threw it in the air, and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians, but the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses." The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. Now if you're like me, you say, But wait a minute. Why would he even say that if the prior verse said the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart? Is this a game going on here? If the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh and he did not listen, he's not going to listen to when he says, go to him again and tell him, let my people go. Well, what's God doing here? What's the point? The very point that Paul is quoting. So that my name would be proclaimed to all the earth. That's his point. All of these plagues... All ten of them were designed progressively to show the awesome character of the judgment and wrath of God. That's what he's saying. We love the part that says, Jacob I love. We don't like this part. It says in verse 15, For by now I could have put my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. Here's the quotation. Here's Paul. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you, Pharaoh, my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. He's risen. He's raised Pharaoh up for the very purpose of showing God's great name to the whole earth. How does that relate to these Roman believers? Well, it could be likened to something like this. Pharaoh was hardened. His heart was hardened. And there's a partial hardening. Romans 11 says there's a partial hardening of them. 
hardening of Pharaoh, hardening of Israel. For this very purpose, I've raised you up so that there would be a hardening, so that my glory would be shown throughout the whole earth, and there's a partial hardening of Israel, so that the gospel of Jesus Christ would be proclaimed throughout the entire Gentile world. And it all comes down to the sole basis of God's purposes which are to be exercised and that is I will bestow my mercy on those whom I will and I will pour out my wrath on those whom I will. Now someone's going to say, but wait a minute. Some of those texts in the book of Exodus say that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Yes, that's true. And some of them just simply say that Pharaoh's heart was hardened, doesn't give an agent. And then there are texts like we just read that said God himself hardened Pharaoh's heart. Which is it? All of the above. All of the above. But the text that Paul is quoting from, God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that those Egyptians would continue to keep their finger on the Israelites for God's sovereign purposes. They'll be dealt with, to be sure, and they were. And God had a plan, and that plan was carried out, and there's a partial hardening of Israel today, and God has a plan, and He's carrying it out, and that plan includes God bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth, And when the fullness of the Gentiles come in, then God will go back and deal with Israel. Douglas Moo is right when he writes this, God's hardening then is an action that renders a person insensitive to God and His Word and that, if not reversed, culminates in eternal damnation. We have seen that Paul has insisted that God bestows His mercy on His own initiative apart from anything that a person is or does. The strict parallelism in this verse suggests, verse 16, that the same is true of God's hardening as He has mercy on whomever He wishes, so He hardens whomever He wishes. And that's where someone says, but wait a minute, if that's true, then who can deal with this God. And verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Implied, why does he still find fault with a person whom he hardens? For who can resist his hardening will? That's a great question. We don't have time to answer that question this morning. But we shall next time. But here's the answer that we need to have right here, right now. It is absolutely true, clear and correct in the Word of God that regardless of what's happening in the inscrutable counsels of the wisdom of God Himself, you and I are responsible to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. You say, I cannot reconcile those two things. Well, just as a father has a very wise plan that does not always make sense to a little child, 
so we do what we're told. And God says, believe and repent. Repent and believe. And serve this God who is your creator. And believe that he is the one who sovereignly dispenses mercy and wrath. Let's pray together. Father, this hard word is your word. And we are called upon to be responsible to repent. That is our responsibility. And Lord, we know that someone will say, but I don't have the ability. And yet your word says, that's an acquired inability. We must repent and believe, which means we cannot unless we receive your mercy. And so we cry out for it. Every person here who has heretofore not received mercy, cry out for mercy. God, bestow mercy sovereignly, freely as you will. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.